Welcome to another episode of the Uncover Up. My name is Lee Kunle, and with me, as always, is Professor Nathan Radke. Hey, I Nathan, am here as always. You are here as always. As always. So uh, this is the junk drawer episode, right? This is the one where we gather all the stuff that we have been thinking about and, and, and putting to the side because it was cool when we found it, but we didn't know what to do with it. And now we're going to make an episode where we just take all that stuff out of the drawer and we talk about all the stuff that we had put aside. Well, actually, it's not even all the stuff. It's like 10% or 5%. It's a small amount. We're not emptying the junk drawer. Here's how to think about it. As you know, as you look around the bunker where we sit right now, you notice that the walls are covered in strange electric guitars. Most of them are built with old Soviet parts. By Nathan Radke himself. Yeah, because there's something about putting together an electric, a working electrical circuit in an electrical guitar that really appeals to me. Mm. We deal in so much confusion and disinformation that it's, it's so gratifying to work with something that is completely logical and deductive. Wait, is that what's happening now? No, it's okay. the opposite of what's happening now. <laughs> That's why I'm building the guitars. <laughs> because if, if the circuit doesn't work when I switch on the guitar, it doesn't make any noise. And if it doesn't work, I can test each part and, and figure out where in the circuit the fault is, and I can fix it, and then I can test it again to see if my evaluation was correct. And this is a kind of reasoning that we just don't get to do for the most part when we talk about conspiracy theories. Yeah, that's true. Because we, we don't get all of the entire picture. There's so many missing pieces that it like I can't do that same kind of deductive reasoning. And so these guitars are a kind of therapy for me. Yeah, they're like an homage to a world that would make sense. This is how it would look. I mean, in a way, this is what gardening is for me. My uh, Nathan builds guitars and I garden. And in the same way, it is, it is the opposite of dealing with conspiracies. Yeah, because you, you put work in and then you see something grow and it, it, it makes sense. It does make sense. If it was like our work in conspiracies, you would put a bunch of work into the garden to make it grow. And then you would go out and instead of a garden, it would be... It would just suddenly show up at random times, like you'd have a garden in the middle of winter, yeah. and you didn't know why it got there, and then it would disappear. Sometimes it would be an active volcano instead of a garden, and you you'd know? think, well, how is this possible? Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's why. That's why these, these weird Soviet guitars are here. But that's actually not where I wanted to take this guitar-building metaphor. I'm going to take it a different direction. It's a, it's a very effective and efficient metaphor. It's got... <laughs> you can lot. do with it what you want. Exactly. I also wanted to point out that sometimes I end up with a bunch of leftover parts when I'm right. building a guitar, and they go in the junk drawer, and then eventually the junk drawer gets too full, and I'll open it up, and I will build an entirely new sort of Frankenstein's monster of a guitar out of those extra parts. Right, okay, I like that image. And that's what this is. This is a Frankenstein's monster episode Okay. where we're going to go through the junk drawer and pick out just some stories that were interesting enough to hold on to. Yeah but not interesting enough to make a whole episode around. That's right. And in my case, they are 
interesting in, in, to some extent also because of what it started getting me to think about. So maybe the story itself is not the biggest conspiracy or most interesting conspiracy, but it touches upon some themes that I think are useful, um, but that we maybe haven't had a chance to explore. Yeah. So who, wait, who's going to go first in this? I'm going to go first. You're going to go first. Okay. This one, you... is, this one is titled, The First Mass Media Panic? Question mark? First mass media panic ever? Question mark. Question mark. Yeah. Ever? Ever? Question mark. So over the years, we've looked at a lot of mass panic events. Yep. Seattle windshield epidemic. There we go. Uh, mods and rockers. Mods and rockers. Uh, satanic panic. Uh, the Illuminati panic of the, the 19th century. Yep. And of the 21st century. Uh, the Hammersmith ghost. Remember that one? Yep. Uh, the kissing bug scare. Oh, yeah. The reason that we, we are so interested in these mass media panics is because we, you learn a lot about a phenomenon by looking to the extreme versions of it. Yep. And mass panic is an extreme version of social contagion. And social contagion is just like a, a really crucial aspect to, to what we're trying to understand, which is the spread of belief and conspiracy theories. Okay. Now, if, if you were to ask me, first mass media panic question mark, I would have thought War of the Worlds. Oh, sure. I mean, and although that one turned out to be far more complicated than we first assumed. And maybe not even a panic. Or maybe a moral panic. Right. Rather than, anyway, go back and listen to the episode on mass panics about that one. If there's anything that we've been stressing for the last 85 episodes, it's that we are social animals. Yep. And to a large extent, how we see the world and understand what's happening around us is driven by the ideas that circulate in our society. Yep. And we are part of that circulation process. We are receivers of information and we are transmitters of information. Yep. And the one thing that all of these events that I just mentioned have in common is that they're all driven to a large extent by mass media distribution. Right. Because, of course, you can have a localized panic without mass media. Yeah. You can have a crowd full of people who become panicked and freak out. I've been in one of those crowds. Yeah. Oh, me too. Um, what, what happened? Oh, okay. It was very disturbing. It was during a riot. There was a bunch of people oh, who were... Oh, so it got worse. Yeah. It, no, it did get worse. <laughs> that, that is like the, that's the starting condition. Yeah. That, everything was okay everything during was the riot. A, everything was fine. It was a riot. <laughs> we were all good. So there was one woman who was attacking a store and she was kicking in the window. And then somebody came out of the store and grabbed the woman to stop her from kicking the window. And at that point, the crowd surged forward with like this, this terrifying anger hmm. directed against this man. Okay. Now, at this moment, I was terrified that this crowd, which was full of ordinary everyday people who were probably not normally capable of doing terrible things, yeah. that maybe in this moment, the crowd would hurt this guy. Right. Whereas none of the individuals in the crowd would, maybe this crowd was about to. Did they? Uh, they did not. The guy let go of the woman. Yeah. The woman backed up. He backed up. The crowd backed off. Okay. And then we carried on with our ride. <laughs> things got back things were nice. yeah. calm down yeah everybody all... can we just go back to rioting for a second <laughs> everybody calm down so you can have a localized panic without mass media i mean all it takes is for one person to start freaking out in the crowd and this is what happened to you i've been in a yeah you're right i've been in a couple of situations that are similar to that although the starting condition was more sedate and i remember being in rome and being part of a march and suddenly people started to run and I got scared and started to run too. 
And I, even though I didn't have a cause to run except that other people were running and looked scared. And, you know, if I look back on my reasoning, it would have been something along the lines of people tend to run in dangerous situations. I might not have seen the dangerous situation, but I'm seeing the effect of it. And I, especially in a different country where I don't speak the language, I don't really know what's going on. I don't think I want to stick around to find out whether I, this dangerous situation is coming to me or I'm going to end up being part of it. So I started to run. It's, am, it's amazing how much of our immediate decision-making is based on the, uh, the concept that you're better safe than sorry. Yeah. Well, uh, in, in, whenever we did this research, I, came up, uh, I discovered a brilliant Irish saying, it is better to be a coward for a day than dead the rest of your life. It's good. Right? And it's true. It's just... It's is that better. what you yelled as you ran with the crowd? That's <laughs> what I was thinking. It's true because, yeah, you, you, you don't always have the um, luxury of deliberating or figuring out the cause. And in that situation, it is better to be safe than sorry. Yeah. Now, hold on a second. How do we get here? Where, where What's going on? Well, because we were talking about the fact that you can have localized Oh, yes. Panic, okay. But to have mass panic, you need mass media. Yeah, because... You don't know what's going on beyond your immediate realm of perception. And for, for, to find out what's happening in other countries or in other places or with other groups of people that I don't generally have access to, I need that stuff told to me. Mass media are amplifiers and accelerators for the circulation of ideas. Yeah. I talked about how this was, in my opinion, maybe the first mass panic. And you guessed, okay, so maybe War of the Worlds... Well, that's that was my assumption of the first one. That's certainly the if you asked me, hey Lee, first mass panic induced by the media, I would say, oh, probably War of the Worlds. Yeah, and How, I mean that's that's pretty good. We, it was the early days of radio. It was a yeah. pretty new medium. Uh, I mean that's a good guess. But but knowing you, I'm two hundred years too late, right? You are almost five hundred years. Whoa! Too late. I just did the math. <laughs> So wait, are we even in a realm of mass media? I mean, newspapers aren't even really operating. They yet. aren't, but you know what is? Uh. Pamphlets. Oh, okay. All right, so it's hard for us to imagine today as we spend every waking moment of our lives drowning in a notion of information, but information used to be extremely hard to come by. Yep. Like you would go through your whole day without seeing the written word or getting new information other than what you could detect with your own senses from your direct experience. Yeah, and, and, and I'll even add to that that there was an ethos that information was not necessarily a good in and of itself and something worth sharing. Your livelihood, your status in the community often depended upon you knowing things. If other people knew how to, I don't know, tell Be time. Be mason. Right, exactly. Or tell time according to the stars. And, you know, your your authority is lost. So even if people knew stuff, they weren't necessarily sharing it, telling other people stuff. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you knew how to mason, for example, you'd probably want to form a secret society where you could protect all the secrets. Exactly. But 1440, circa 1440. Yep. Of course, what is the invention that shows up in... Europe and it's like it changes everything. Well, it's the printing press. And so by 1499, we're at the dawn of a brand new century, okay. an exciting new century. The printing press had been around for about half a century, fundamentally changing the way people interact with information. Revolutions, information revolutions happen very quickly now. Mm. Like a new app can revolutionize, like TikTok has revolutionized communication in the course of, of months, basically. 
And then before then, the internet in years, right. the TV in decades. You know, back then, it, it took longer to have this kind of information revolution. But during the Middle Ages, like 500 to 1400, written materials were extremely rare and were written, of course, in Latin, which most people couldn't understand anyway. And as you were saying, the purpose of the written word was to preserve the information and to uh, encode religious dogma for the church's purposes. It wasn't supposed to get information out to the masses. Yeah. That's not what information was for. But with the information of the printing press, we see something else emerge, the popular printed pamphlet, which for our younger listeners, this is like the Twitter of, <laughs> of its day. Of early modernity. Yeah, the Twitter of early modernity is the pamphlet. <laughs> Put that on my gravestone. They were written in languages that people could actually understand, and they shifted the nature of the written word from something that the elites had control over to something that was more democratic. Yeah. Because it, it, it didn't cost that much to print off some pamphlets. Mm. And in a lot of ways, obviously, this is great news. We're very pro-information here. Yes. Like, we believe that information should be free and circulated, and we should have access it's, to it's it. It's like our whole thing. Yeah. It's what we do in our free time. It's what we do for work. It's what we did in our studies. Yeah. I mean, that's just what we do. The amount of freedom of information requests that I make has almost <laughs> certainly put me on some kind of watch list. And because of the relationship between information and power, the more democratic information is, the more the power is sort of spread out amongst the people, which is something, again, we are, I'd say we're probably anti-elite. We're anti-dictatorship. This is sort of, this is where we are. Real revolutionary ideas right here. That's right. A monopoly of information is a monopoly of power. So you bust up that monopoly of information, you bust up that monopoly of power. Having said all that, yeah. there are also some problems with an increased spread of information. Okay. Because with an increased spread of information comes its ugly sibling. Yep. The increased spread of misinformation. Right. And one of the first ever mass media events in European history started in 1499 when two German astrologers, Jakob Verflaum. <laughs> okay, I'll let it go. <laughs> okay, you say this. P-F-L-A-U-M. P-F-L-A-U-M. Flaum, which is, what's the English? Um, it's a plum. Oh. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, that's nice. So Jacob Plum and Johann Stoffler. Eh? Yeah, probably probably with a sh at the beginning. Stoffler. Like Stoffler. Stoffler. Okay, Johann Stoffler. So these two German astrologists, uh, Jake and John, they look up at the night sky and they do a little math. Yeah. And they come to the conclusion that Hey, you know what? In the year 1524, 25 years from when they were writing, all of the planets that they knew about in the solar system would line up in a row. Okay. Now, this would almost certainly have some kind of giant effect. Right. And so in their pamphlet that they wrote about it, they stated that that will show an indubitable transformation, change and reversal over nearly the entire world. The climate zones, empires, countries, cities, and classes, in insensible creatures, the creatures of the sea, and everything born on earth, as forsooth, has not been heard for many years, neither by historians nor by the forefathers. Okay, so the planets line up, and you know it's it's something and, big's going to happen, and, and it's going to go down. It's going to go down. Okay. Okay, but they didn't say what exactly form that shit would take. Right. 
Uh, in, in fact, when you read the pamphlet, if you read Latin, because this pamphlet was still in Latin, they used words like uh, mutatio and variatio and alteratio, which are sort of vague. Like there's going to be changes, there's mm. going to be variations, there's going to be alterations. But this pamphlet makes the academic circles, and between 1499 and 1521, it gets reprinted five times. So it's out there. Okay. However, then an influencer gets in on the action. Aha. Uh -huh. Luca Goriccio was the most famous Italian astrologer of the time and had just been appointed to the University of the Vatican. Uh -huh. So okay. this is like, yeah, this guy is the, the for real deal. And Goriccio prints up his own pamphlet based on that pamphlet. And while the original prediction from Flaum and Stoffler was vague, Goriccio had figured out exactly what was going to go down. Okay. Because the planets were going to line up in the constellation of Pisces. Uh-huh. Now, as a former fan of astrology, what's Pisces about? So Pisces is a water sign, right? It's the fish. It's, am I right about that? Because yep. it's, been, it's a been a while, while. now. That ugh, water, a friend of mine's really into astrology, so we should have her on. But um, You've already said enough. Oh, okay. You, you've already hit on it. All right. Okay. It's a water sign. Yes. So what kind of great change is going to uh, happen? Flood. Exactly. Oh, okay. So Gariccio sends his new and improved prediction pamphlet to the German Reichstag. And Stoffler, who is still around at this point, points out, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't say anything about a giant flood. And other academics pointed out that God specifically promised not to drown everyone again. Right. Like after Noah's flood, that's what rainbows are for, apparently. Right. Yes. That's his promise. He's like, that's I just right. drowned everybody. I'm not going to do it again. Here's the rainbow. Here's the rainbow. Yeah, and, and if I might just interject here, it's not good to make such specific predictions. It's better to keep it vague because then you can always massage whatever happens afterwards. So, well, it was a spiritual realigning or it was this or it was that. If you like, there's going to be a flood on this day and everyone's going to drown, that doesn't happen. It's more difficult to massage that after the fact. And this is 1521 and he's saying it's going to happen in four years. Yeah. Like... This is the, we'll the advice. Remember. Yeah, this is the advice we always give to cult leaders. Yeah, exactly. Don't have your doomsday have a specific date. No. There was this wild speculation about this flood occurring, and then there was all of this careful debunking explaining why it wouldn't. However, wild speculation flies on wings. Debunking plods along on foot. Oh God, isn't that the truth? And so other pamphleteers reproduce Garicho's flood claims. And new pamphlets show up in Italian and Polish and German and Spanish. And I've looked at a lot of these. And a lot of them have these amazing, like, eye-catching wood-carving imprints on the front. Yeah. Like, depicting... It looks like a movie poster for a disaster movie. Yeah. Okay. It, it's great stuff. Even though it's still early on, uh, as far as mass information distribution goes, we had already realized what sells. Okay. If fear? It, fear. If it bleeds, it leads. All right. Uh, a lot of them have these these wood carving imprints on the imminent watery disaster that was going to hit. And it's it's only a few years away at this point. Yeah. And some of these new pamphlets, of course, because it's snowballing at this point, expand on Gariccio's initial claims. Uh, for example, the German astrologer Johann Carrion. Okay. He claimed that the, the Great Flood of 1524 would be followed by war, famine, and chaos, followed by the emergence of the Antichrist. Okay. In 1789. Right, okay. 1789. 
happened. <laughs> could, could Robespierre well, have been the Antichrist? He, he got a good date. I, I mean, mean to give him it, that much. Yeah, it could get the could, French Revolution. Yeah, it's not bad. By 1523, T minus one year to the flood, over 60 authors had written over 160 pamphlets, over 160,000 copies of them were in circulation. Mm. That's not a small amount. That's, no. that's like considerable. This stuff would be read in public squares, you know, like one person reads and then 100 hear it or 50 hear it. Yeah. And the other thing that's happening is literacy rates are starting to creep sure. up a little yeah. bit. Because now it makes sense to learn how to read. Yeah. Because... Maybe you're going to come across the written word at some point yeah. during the day. The Viennese court astrologer Georg Tanstetter. Why am I always doing the German name? I don't know. Georg? Georg, sure. Tanstetter? I guess. How do you spell it? T-A-N-N-S-T-E-T-T-E-R. Tanstetter, yeah. Ta Georg Tanstetter. I just need to say it angry. <laughs> anyway, Tanstetter was one of the ones trying to debunk the claims arguing in 1523 that a great cry has been sounded because many papers and pamphlets were circulated this year which I do not consider to be the righteous work of a learned man. Ah. That's like, that's a flame war. Yep. That is a, like an early modern flame war. Tanstata also blamed the unspeakable greed of the printers for putting out such irresponsible material, mm. which I think is interesting. Mm. These, yeah, these are a lot of the same tropes and complaints that we hear today yeah like you could replace pamphlets with facebook yeah and you could have a very similar conversation yep yeah, exactly so a flood had already begun throughout europe although it was not a watery flood oh it was a pamphlet flood uh -huh. and even leonardo da vinci who you might have heard of famous painter yeah okay uh, he did a series of drawings based on garicho's claims oh yeah yeah i mean it's mostly just watery stuff so as the deadline grows nearer and many wealthy nobles have fled to the mountains for, quote, hunting trips. Mm -hmm. That's not why. They were just trying to go high up. And other people started doing the only reasonable thing to do in a situation like this, build arcs. Right. And even as far away as London, people were fleeing their homes and taking to the hills. I've seen numbers as large as 20,000 people. Although I assume that's an exaggeration, because let's face it, who would have been taking a census of the people fleeing to the hills? Right, right, right. But what I am confident in saying is that this was a legit panic. Yeah, like this a lot was... of people are freaking out. Now, this is the point, though, where we get to the part of the story that is both the best part of the story and the part of the story that I am least confident that it actually occurred. Oh, okay. Because when you come across this story, it always ends with this one little vignette. And the vignette is of a specific Count von Igelheim. Okay. German Count. <laughs> now, there is a place called Igelheim. It's on the, the banks of the Rhine. Okay. So uh, that exists. And, and here's the story as it is often repeated, and you see it on listicles, and you read it in books. Okay. And it's like this is the part of the story that everybody knows. Count von Igelheim builds a massive three-story arc to protect himself and his family from the Im imminent catastrophe. And on February 20th, 1524, a light drizzle starts falling on the area. And the townsfolk freak out. Mm -hmm. And they rush the ark. Okay. And in that desperate rush to get to the ark, according to the accounts, hundreds of people are trampled to death. Oh, no. And then... After von Igelheim refused to let people onto the Ark, the survivors storm the ship, haul von Igelheim off of it, and stone him to death. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> I'm not supposed to laugh at that part. Well, I mean, it's, <laughs> here's why Lee's not a monster. <laughs> because I'm not sure if any of that happened. Okay. Okay. That makes me feel better. It's just, I find irony quite funny. And and, 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 and just, tragedy plus time equals humor. Yes, that's true too. But it's just so ironic. Like you built this thing to try and protect yourself from something that's not going to happen. And then other people who are also afraid of this thing come running over and kill you because they're so because you're not going to help them to protect them from this thing that's not happening. I mean, isn't it ironic? Right? Don't you think? Don't you think? A little too ironic. <laughs> I really do think. Do you? In fact, it was that irony that made me suspicious of this part of the story. Yeah, okay. Because I was like, oh, that is like the that's like the chef's kiss. Yeah. Of this story. That's so good. But then I thought, wait, there's parts of the story that don't make sense to me. Like hundreds of people trampled to death. That's a lot of people trampled to death. That's a good point. And and I This is a medieval village. This is a medieval all. village. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would have been fairly open. These wouldn't have been like narrow, like city right. streets. Right. And this would have been by the river. If people had drowned, uh, maybe it would have made more sense. The fact that they stoned him to death. There wasn't a whole lot of stoning to death going on in Europe at this time. Okay. There was burning to death. Yeah. Or there was hanging. There were some witches that were being stoned, weren't there? I mean, that's that happens in Salem. Sorry to yeah, but they don't, cross to they get don't, things. They don't throw stones at No, him. they crush them. Yeah. They crush them with like big stones. Yeah. And von Egelheim was... Different types of stonings. Yeah. And von Egelheim is a silly name, but it's a German name, so who can say? Yeah. No, it sounds legit. So I, I started to, to look into this. And like I said, it was so well established. I came across the pamphlets, all of these other astronomers. There were so many cross-references, historians talking about it. But there was no historians talking about von Igelheim. It was internet listicles. Yeah, uh, okay. It was books without references. Right. And I couldn't find any references to von Igelheim that predated the internet. Okay. So I think the von Igelheim part of this might be an urban legend. Ah, uh, Okay. And that, I mean, on one hand, that makes the story kind of worse because it doesn't have that, that fine ending. On the other hand, I realized, you know what this means? Is that it's possible that the most well-known aspect of this story, which is the story of the world's first mass media misinformation panic, actually has misinformation in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So there you go. So there is the first item from the junk drawer. First item from the junk drawer. It's a big item. It's a big item. All right. So it really is the junk drawer. We're pulling out one thing after another. They don't cohere. There is no overarching uh, theme besides the fact that these are just things we found interesting but weren't able to dedicate a whole episode to them. Oh, yeah. I mean, my next one is about flying saucers. So Yeah, okay. So this one... I, I know you had nice titles and then I got interested in the story that you were telling and I, I have not come up with a nice title for this, but we can add it in post. Ah, okay. Maybe I don't know. No one I'll will tell. know. I will I will give I'll, um, I'll edit it so well that no one will be able to tell. Okay. This is how you do a lot of things that make me sound smarter than I am. So right? just say, give me a clean the title of this one is The title of this one is Sadly, Lee and Nathan forgot to come up with a title. That's a great title. Thank you. So do we need a democracy in order to have conspiracies, government conspiracies? Now, that might not be the most obvious connection, because obviously you can have any government can do something nefarious or dangerous or whatever. But after 
this example, I started to think about the fact that, in a sense, we have the assumption in a democracy that our governments are transparent and that they're working on behalf of the people. And in that context, it does make sense then if a apparently transparent government that's working on behalf of the people does something that's demonstrably not on behalf of the people and is in secret, you say, well, there's a conspiracy right there. And I got to think of some other ones besides MKUltra and COINTELPRO that we always bring up. But... C-spray. C-spray, which might not be the kind of thing that if, if, unless you've heard all our episodes, but yeah, these kinds of government, um, American government chemical weapons tests or whatever on their own citizens say, well, that is super dangerous. That's not what a, a, a democratic representative government can do. The Watergate scandal can only be a scandal if you have the assumption that your politicians are acting honorably and honestly. Exactly. Exactly. So Watergate, I think, is a perfect example of how there is often this, this I think, I'm, and actually after thinking about it, I'm not sure I can go all the way, but just to be clear in what I'm thinking is a democracy and a representative, transparent, open government is a kind of precondition to some extent for a conspiracy. In order for a government to be secretly up to something shady, they have to at least have the appearance of not being shady. That's right. So... I have an example of how it might work the other way around, which is to say, if you have a government which is secretive, which does not even pretend to be a representative democratic government, and one in which you as a citizen of that country know full well what the deal is, which is that those people in power call the shots, it might make sense, it might not make sense, and your job is just to obey. So what would a conspiracy look like here? And in, in, a, in a totalitarian regime, in an authoritarian regime. Exactly. So, mm. of course, this one comes from the Soviet Union. Classic. I heard this story from the Slovenian uh, philosopher Slavoj Žižek. If you know who he is, he needs no introduction. For those of you who don't, he's a left-wing East European philosopher who has a reputation of being... Um, a crank? Uh, yeah, a crank, but also a troublemaker, the kind of person who says stuff to rile people up as much as to make an interesting philosophical point. He pokes um, the bear. He really, really does. Anyway, this is a story that he recounts. So I have, you know, I, this is where I got the story from. I haven't been able to corroborate it anywhere I else. Have. Oh, you have? Okay. Yeah, I, no, I've looked into the story and it does appear that this did take place. I tried to actually get independent sources of it. I wasn't able to, but... Um, okay, so Nathan and Zizek both agree that this happened. So it uh, takes place in the early 50s in the Soviet Union. And the key protagonist here is a guy named Beria, Lavrenti Beria. He has a lot of titles, but he's the important point is that he was essentially the head of the secret police at the end of Stalin's life. So in the early 50s. So um, imagine the sort of person who would be the head of the secret police under Stalin. Yeah, he is not a nice man. Like, just some of the things that are attributed to him include massacres of towns and villages, like 60,000 people gone, mass arrests. This would be the stuff for the gulag, like, you know, political prisoners, other people, they just disappear 10 years. Sometimes they have what's euphemistically known as no right to correspondence, which often meant they were executed. And so 
they couldn't respond to their family's requests for, you know, letters and things. Deportations, including like huge, like there was deportations and then there was like mass forced re, relocal, what is it, the word? Re, relocations? Relocations, thank you, of like large groups of people within the Soviet Union. So if you were an indigenous community somewhere in, in Siberia, you might be moved somewhere else just for the convenience of building a railway or a gulag. With a totally like different that. climate. You don't know anything about the plants there. You might not even be all going to the same place. You might not all have made it. That certainly. And genocide. Yeah. Now, these are just some of the crimes that he is responsible for. I mean, he's a historical monster. He is a historical monster. He is the guy who is really like in charge of the mass political prison system in one of the periods in which it is the worst. Now, if, if the late 30s is when it really, really is the worst, but it's... You know, it's pretty bad still. It's still pretty bad. Still pretty bad. Anyway. But he's also a hero of the Soviet Union. Well, I'm not even going to touch that. Uh, the, 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 yeah. I mean, the Soviet... Officially. Officially, yeah. The Soviet Union, of course. Okay, things, things get complicated in part w with what happens next. Now, Stalin dies in 1953, and... He leaves a power vacuum, and it's not entirely clear who is supposed to su succeed Stalin. And Well, because now, there's always that question, right? When you have an absolute dictator, and that dictator dies, as all humans do, then what? Yeah, exactly. So Beria certainly thought that he was in line, but he wasn't the only person who thought that. And he, he goes on to kind of rebrand himself as the good guy, that actually all of his own you know, whatever excesses were because Stalin made him do it. But now that Stalin's dead, you know, he didn't want to do any of it anyway. And, you know, we should be happy with him. So I'm not going to get into the whole internal power play because that's not... a junk drawer episode. Exactly. And it's not central to what is actually the, the weirdly conspiratorial part of this. Yeah, this is just a setup. It is just a setup. So what happens is Beria, as head of secret police, who was responsible for having many, 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 many people executed, himself finds himself arrested and then sentenced and executed in, in no short order. Now, it's, it's unclear exactly who was responsible for it. Uh, Khrushchev is often identified as probably the ringleader, but it's not clear and everybody was out to get everybody. So, you know, uh, we can Barry, say that Khrushchev benefited from it. Well, he certainly did, but some people think that he benefited from it and also and organized also, it. And also carried it out, yeah. So, And uh, just a quick aside, Yeah, I would rather have Khrushchev in than Beria. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Khrushchev ends up being a lot less scary than, than Stalin was, for sure, and certainly Beria was under Stalin. Yeah. Now, maybe Beria was going to turn a new leaf, but yeah, I don't know. Like, with that no, kind of a truth, the thing about his death is that it's slightly inconvenient because the Soviet Union has just released and, and sent off an encyclopedia. An official state encyclopedia. An official state encyclopedia. And in that encyclopedia, if you were to go to the entry B-E-R, the first thing you would find is an entry about Lavrenti Beria, the great 
commander and you know head of the secret police and all his titles and all Hero of the soviet union exactly except that now he isn't now he's just been shot in the back of the head he's been shot in the back of the head for and i have to uh, give you the uh, charges he was charged with being a british spy who committed treason terrorism and counter-revolutionary activities I mean, this is the kind of way you got charged under Stalinism, is that you were charged with being a... This often happened to political leaders who Stalin wanted to get rid of, as you would be charged with, say, having tried to kill Lenin or, you know, something. And it was like 20 years ago or whatever. It was all made up, but he was charged with these things. and Which, that's, which is amazing, because here we have a guy responsible for mass murder... And they they fake charges about him being a British spy. Right. Instead of just saying, oh, he's a mass murderer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't sincerely murder those people. That's right. He was doing it insincerely, yes. pretending to, you know, be one of us when he was actually a British spy. So, of course, he wasn't a spy, but this is how you got rid of your political enemies. And so he is executed. Um, the encyclopedia comes out. There is this entry on Beria, but that's embarrassing so here's the conspiratorial moment in a political regime when conspiracies are completely unnecessary. So what happens is the Soviet Union sends out a new encyclopedia page. Now, they don't replace the book. That would be too expensive. Yeah, way too expensive. So they send all the subscribers a single page now, with instructions on how to remove the offending entry about Beria and there's this new page that has a replacement entry about the Bering Straits, this right. geological formation. Anyway, so the, the thing was, there were the instructions, you were to cut out this, this page with Beria in it, yeah, from the encyclopedia, and you were to replace it with this new page that you were now to tape into the encyclopedia so that, you know, if anybody were to look into it, they wouldn't be faced with the contradiction in the Soviet Union that this hero of the Soviet Union was actually a British spy. It, we would re-remember it correctly. This is a thing about totalitarianism. It's a thing about fascism. There's a real desire from the top down to try to enforce a reality on yeah. the world. But Zizek brings up the very interesting point, which is who is the subject for whom this is done? Because right. anybody who goes through this procedure, knows very well that we are removing the entry of Barry. And Barry is a famous person in, in the Soviet Union at this time. We know who this man is. We know what's happened to him. We know also that what this means by removing the page from the encyclopedia and putting a new one in, right? So it's as though we're all in on the conspiracy that is directed towards us. Yeah, it's a cover-up, but the people covering it up are the ones for whom the cover-up is designed. Right. So you are concealing this information from yourself. <laughs> this is what conspiracies look like in non-democratic And, and they're asking you to. They're asking you. It's like, we all need to be part of a conspiracy now where That's all right. of us pretend that this didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's extraordinary. There are things when we talk about conspiracies that are left unsaid and that we take for granted. And I think one of them is that government shouldn't operate like this. But that's actually... Not necessarily the case across the world. There are many people who live under governments who have no illusion that their government is not out for their best interest and does things in a very heavy-handed way um, that's not in the interests of the people. 
I use these terms because that's often how we define a conspiracy, right? Is that it's a small group of people doing something in secret against the public good. But in this case, it's a large group of people the population uh, doing of the country, something basically. in public yeah. for, I guess, the public good, according to the Soviet Union. It's a bizarre you know, reconfiguration of our reg- the, what we normally consider to be a conspiracy. Yeah, I, I think having spoken to people who grew up in the Soviet system, there was a, a, such a different relationship to reality than, than we would expect in the West. In the West, uh, we, have, we have all these illusions, illusions like our government is a democracy, <laughs> illusions like we have a say in, in what happens, illusions like our institutions are looking out for us and our police are here to protect us and, and all that kind of thing. But we maintain those, those illusions and I think maybe even believe them. Whereas in the Soviet system, you didn't have to do that extra work. No. You did not ever have to actually believe it. And there were people who, of course, were fully committed. Yep. But even those people would know that, you know, a relative of theirs was hauled off in the middle of the night by yep. the secret police. Yep. And they would just have to reconcile and be like, I guess this is the medicine we have to take. Yep. And so cutting out that that encyclopedia page and burning it and pretending you've never seen it and then putting a new one in and pretending it was there all along, even though everyone knows it's untrue, that's just the medicine you got to take. Yeah. Well, it's a, and it's another, it's a different expression of power where when somebody can get me to do something like that, the subtext is also, yeah, you've got all the power and I've got none. Because even though I know it's BS, I'm still going to do it because God forbid, you know, somebody come into my house and leaf through my encyclopedia and find that I still have the barrier entry. Right. That's, you know, what, 10 years in the gulag. Who knows? Yeah. Even if the person who finds it also secretly has their barrier entry too. Yeah. doesn't matter. No, no. What's the lesson? There is no lesson as such, except that it started to get me thinking about my assumptions about what constitutes a conspiracy and things that I've left unsaid that I actually assume that my government should be working in the interests of the people and that conspiracies really only make sense in that context. That's a good one. That's a good junk drawer bit. I don't know. Junk drawer. I've got one. All right. This one's titled Kelly Johnson's Flying Saucer. Okay. Okay. So in 2021, there were some interesting revelations made by the Pentagon regarding UFOs. Remember that? They, they, the Navy oh, yeah. came in. It's like, oh, we've been chasing UFOs, you guys. Yeah. And you were, what I specifically remember is that this was the time when you were like, huh, maybe they're chasing UFOs. Yeah. I mean, are they chasing UFOs? Because they admitted that Navy fighter planes had encountered some sort of unidentified aerial phenomenon and that the videos and sensor information that had been leaked a few years earlier of Navy pilots chasing UFOs was, according to the Pentagon, legit. Right. A lot of that footage was pretty weird. You can hear the the pilots saying... What is that? Yeah. And, and like laughing at this weird thing that they're chasing yeah. in the sky. So we did a few episodes on those encounters and also on the official Pentagon report that came out afterwards. So the upshot is there's clearly something in the air, but what? The Pentagon report argued that they had ruled out natural causes. So it wasn't just some weird weather phenomenon. Or geese. Or geese. 
or pelicans. Right. Which are terrifying. <laughs> are they? Oh, I'll show you something later. Pelicans are scary. It also claimed to have ruled out secret foreign tech and secret American tech. And as I recall, that's when you piped up and said, no, it's, it's secret American tech and they're lying. Yeah. Which I think is a reasonable position. It's still my position. And the reason that's a reasonable position is because there's a long history of secret American tech being mistaken for something extraterrestrial. Yeah. Also, there's a history of the Americans being responsible for that misunderstanding. Yeah, and even like planting UFO stuff right? amongst the UFO community exactly. to try to cover up secret tech. And so totally reasonable. I, I think mean, I, it was your point that at some point you need to take your airplane out of the hangar and test it. Once you reach that stage of development, it's possible civilians are going to see it. Yeah, it's really hard to hide something in the air. Now, there is one man who was responsible for a lot of that secret American tech that was mistaken for UFOs. And at least in the 1950s and 60s, which was sort of like, the, that's prime time for UFOs. Yeah. And that man is Clarence Leonard Johnson, a.k.a. Kelly Johnson. Okay. Uh, now, you haven't heard of this guy. No. Nope. No, I have because I have an encyclopedic knowledge of aircraft. Yes. Which I try to hold back from and you've overtaking... Been doing a, you've been doing a good job of that. Does it come up in the LSD episode? Has yeah. it come up with didn't witches? Come, didn't come up with Kurt Cobain. <laughs> but now it's coming up. Now it's coming up. There's always a danger that I've got all this, this aircraft information welling up inside of me. So <laughs> Kelly Johnson okay. was a design engineer for Lockheed and worked on the classic Lockheed P-38 Lightning before World War II. The P-38, you'd know it if you'd saw it. It's got like the twin boom tails. It's got two engines. It's a wild-looking airplane. Okay. Now, during World War II, Johnson, this, this engineer for Lockheed, was taken to a top-secret test facility and was shown a plane called the P-59 Aerocomet. Okay. Now, this plane you have heard of because it was America's first experimental jet plane. And, of course, we know it as the monkey plane. Oh, well, that's the XP-51? 59. Oh, look at me. Yeah, that's pretty good. I got three out of four of the letters. So why am I calling <laughs> it the monkey plane? Right. This is pretty brilliant. The American, this is during World War II. Yep. The jet, Ameri jet airplanes are a brand new thing. Right. They, so they've just developed a jet airplane, the Americans have, but they want to test it again outside of a hangar. They actually want to fly this around, but they're worried about other pilots uh, seeing them and this is there there's really no way around this i mean you're going to fly and and other pilots are going to see you and of course the the worry in world war ii is not that the pilots are spies necessarily but then they come back down and they go out drinking with their buddies and they start you know saying what they saw that day in their flights and yeah i saw a plane with no propeller Right. And then next to them would be a Soviet spy or a German spy. Or Honeypot. What, exactly. You know, listening in and, and revealing the America's, you know, most advanced secrets. OK, so the Americans come up with a solution, which is really ingenious. In fact, it was the pilot who came up with this. Yeah, one of the test pilots. It was the test pilot. The answer being, let's not hide it. He put on a monkey or a gorilla mask, I think it was. And the gorilla mask, I think, is smoking a cigar. And now the idea is, if there are other pilots in the air, you put on the mask and you fly close to them and, like, wave and stuff like that. Because now, the, what is the pilot who is seeing you going to say? 
I've seen an airplane that flies faster than any other airplane without any propellers flown by a gorilla smoking a cigar. You're going to get grounded. You're going to get grounded. And this is being a technical term in aviation, not what your mom does. Right. It's, and if you come up with something like this to your base commander, I think they're, they'll, their next thing is like, look, I can't I trust can't put this. you in an airplane. Exactly. I can't trust you in this $200,000 piece of equipment or million dollar piece of equipment. You've got the DTs or something. Right. So this is, the, this is why we call it the monkey airplane, because this was how the Americans hid their, their experimental jet aircraft from other fighters, which is a brilliant, brilliant thing. But it shows you the esteem and the access to information that Kelly Johnson had, mm. that he was one of the few who was actually brought in to be like, hey, check out this airplane. Okay. Now he checks out the XP-59. Yeah. And it's like, this airplane is a piece of crap. Oh, really? Yeah, it wasn't a good plane. Oh, it wasn't even a good plane. It was not a good plane at all. <laughs> I mean, it was supposed to be a fighter plane. It was slow. It wasn't maneuverable. It wasn't reliable. So he puts together a, like, absolute top secret development division at Lockheed called the Skunk Works. Ah, uh, yeah. Now I know about Skunk Works. Yeah, and, and the reason you know about Skunk Works is because of some of the amazing planes that are going to be coming out yeah. in the next few decades designed by Kelly Johnson. Now, so Skunk Works, as I understand it, is actually an arm's length organization from the U.S. Air Force. And they, they're one of the groups that develop or design a lot of their stuff. Yeah. But they're not necessary. They're not military guys. No, it's still Lockheed, but they're sort of separate from all the, like Kelly Johnson's like, I don't want any red tape. I don't yeah. want any in- interference. I just want the best engineers working on the best planes. Interestingly, one of the first engineers he hires is the first indigenous female engineer. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice little bit of history there. Well, the other thing, and sometimes I wish that other organizations took it, took this, they had this managerial structure where you were rewarded for having fewer managers rather than more. That's Kelly Johnson. Right? And he's like, you don't, like, you actually get a promotion if you can demonstrate that you can run your department with fewer managers. Yeah, I think maybe our school should do that. But during Just the, saying. So, so, it, <laughs> so Kelly comes up. He's seen this XP-59. It's a piece of crap. So he then produces America's first operational operational jet fighter, the P-80, which is a beautiful plane. It's gorgeous, okay. and it was reliable and effective. It was a good first effort for a jet Are fighter. Are we in the 50s? No, we're still in the 40s. Whoa. It almost shows up in time for World War II. So, almost. So Skunk Works actually emerges in World War II. Yeah. They oh, sent I some of his planes were... over to England, and they get to England, but the war ends. Okay. So then, during the early days of the Cold War, obviously the military-industrial complex is absolutely roaring along, and Johnson designs the F-104, a.k.a. the missile with a man in it, a.k.a. the Widowmaker, a.k.a. the flying coffin. I'll show you a picture of it later. It's wild. It was this tiny little plane with tiny little wings that went extremely fast and crashed a lot. But... Most important, and there is a whole other conspiracy about the F-104, which I'm not going to get into right now, but I'll tell you about once we're off the air. (laughs) But most importantly, because it has Germany in it, but most importantly... I feel like this is when we need a Patreon account. (laughs) We have like the the conspiracies nobody gets to know about unless you pass. Yeah, Nathan talks about airplanes. (laughs) So most importantly, Johnson and his Skunk Works team designed the U-2, the A-12, Oxcart. 
Ox cart is an amazing plane. And of course, what other plane? The SR-71. Oh, right. You could have gotten that one. I could have gotten that one, but I often actually confuse it with the ox cart. Well, because they look almost identical. Yeah. Yeah. So in addition, it was Johnson who chooses the Nevada Groom Lake site to set up as a secret oh, test ground for the what? U-2. Of course I know this guy. Yeah. He's the guy who came up with Area 51. He's yeah. the guy who's like, that's where I want to test my secret spy planes. Yeah. He is behind Area 51, Kelly Johnson. And they chose it because it essentially already, the, the desert was so flat and dry there that they essentially already had a landing pad. Yeah, it was like a dry lake bed. Yeah, so you didn't need to do anything. Yeah. Just take off and land from there. I mean, to give you an idea of just how much Kelly Johnson's DNA is in Area 51, to construct the air traffic control buildings there, they needed a fake corporation. And that fake corporation was called the CLJ, <laughs> Clarence L. Johnson. Cute. Like secrecy was absolutely like just total. It was clamped down yeah. at Area 51. Sure. And then, of course, U-2, uh, which was uh, sort of like a big glider. That was the plane, of course, that was flying over the Soviet Union secretly. Right. One was shot down right. with Gary Powers in Gary it. Powers. Caused a massive thing. So the U-2 is up there. The A-12, which was just an insane plane. Whereas the U-2 was a giant glider, the A-12 looks like a spaceship. Right. And is this the thing that, like, doesn't work until it's going basically supersonic speeds? And so on the ground... Just it's leaking like, fluids out. Yeah, it's like it's almost falling apart. And then you've got to get it high and fast uh, before it starts to operate like a proper plane. Yeah, these planes, <laughs> they were flying at, like, such a speed and such a height. Like, it was pushing technology... We still haven't really caught up to some of these planes. Yeah. They were extraordinary. The U-2 is still being flown. Yeah. Because it was, in the 1950s, this thing was mind-boggling. The A-12, the SR-71. And all of these go on to generate dozens of UFO reports. Right. Of course they do. Because you see something weird in the sky, and you're like, what the heck is that? Yep. And you think you know what all the airplanes are. In sure. fact, one of our listeners told us that story about a friend of his who was flying an F-100 across the American Southwest... And he's going like Mach 1 at yeah. like 30,000 feet, looks up in the sky and sees something just blow by him yeah. at about 90,000 feet. Yeah. He's like, what on earth could that have been? Well, exactly. Exactly. And, and um, Annie Jacobson in her history of Area 51 t tells similar stories. And of course, especially when you are a fighter pilot and you're flying advanced tech. Yeah. And you think you're in the hotshot airplane. Right. And then something leaves you like you're standing still. Yeah. And so, and then of course, when you land, who's going to be waiting for you? Uh, men in black. Yeah. The guys in black suits who and are like, sign this. Sign a DNA, right? Yeah. You saw nothing. An NDA. NDA. Sorry. So, I mean, that's a pretty interesting little thing. Kelly Johnson, you didn't know he was so influential in this whole UFO top secret movement. Yeah. That's not even the story I wanted to tell. <laughs> that's the setup. That's the setup. All right. What's yeah. the story? What do he do? Okay. Because here's the thing. So far, you like this story because it fits in with your very reasonable position that UFOs are probably secret American tech. Oh, yeah. I forgot where you had started. Yeah. This is, this is all in service of your idea that they might actually be UFOs this or something. I've entrapped you. Uh, darn it. Because on December 16th, 1953, Johnson is at his California ranch with his wife. And as he watches the sunset, he noticed what he thought at first was a black cloud. However... The outline of the object didn't change. He assumed it was a lenticular cloud, which is a really weird-looking cloud that looks like a flying saucer. Okay. But, quote, 
When it did not move or disintegrate, I asked my wife to get me our binoculars, so I would not have to take my eyes off the object, which by now I had recognized as a so-called saucer. As soon as I was given the glasses, I ran outside and started to focus the glasses on the object, which now was moving fast on a heading between 240 degrees and 260 degrees. When I got the glasses focused on the object, it was already moving behind the first layer of haze. I gathered its speed was very high because of the rate of foreshortening of its major axis. The object, even in the glasses, appeared black and distinct, but I could make out no detail as I was looking towards the setting sun, which was of course below the horizon at this time. In 90 seconds from the time it started to move, the object had completely disappeared in a long, shallow climb on the heading noted. The clouds were coming on shore in a direction of travel opposite to that of the object. The time in which my wife and I studied this object was between 5 o'clock and 5.05. The object, which had hovered stationary for at least three minutes, appeared to be very large, but not knowing its distance from me, I could not estimate its dimensions. At all times, the object appeared as an ellipse, with a ratio of the larger axis to the minor one of about 7 or 10 to 1. Hmm. Couple things. That's a good UFO report. Yeah. This is a guy who knows airplanes probably better than anyone else on Earth at the time. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who has access. Like, he is, doesn't just have access to this, the top secret stuff. He is the top secret stuff. And yet, in 1953, he sees something... <laughs> Nathan is pointing an accusatory finger at me. <laughs> That's right. He sees something, and he doesn't know what it is. Yeah. So what do we do with that? I don't know. I, do you not have a solution? You're looking at me. No, that's why it's I, in the junk drawer. Okay, with other stuff. I just, I just really like this as an ambush. Okay. What do we do with it? Well, so here's my thing. I don't like it when it comes down to one guy saw something. Two people. Two people, whatever. I just don't think it's good evidence, right? So I don't know what's going on. Like, I, I seriously have no idea how to explain it. But I feel like the kind of stuff I like more in terms of UFO ev evidence is when uh, Captain Mantell, by contrast, this, this object that he chases, and we've talked about this in a, an earlier episode about a fighter pilot who in 47 goes chasing after something completely unexplainable. That thing is seen by hundreds and hundreds of people. It's seen all over the state. It's seen by police officers, by aircraft control um, errs, aircraft controllers. It's seen by civilians. It's seen, you know. Yeah, it was undeniable that something weird was in the sky that day. And now today we have the answer as to what that was. Then at that point they didn't. And it really was this unbelievable mystery because it just, it didn't make sense what and, they were seeing. And of course Mantell was killed pursuing it. Exactly. But that's, a good observation, you know, that's like, that's something where if we didn't today have the data that we do, and I'm trying, I'm being a bit cagey because we did do a bit of an episode on this and I don't want to reveal it, but there's a straightforward explanation. Now, let's imagine we didn't have that straightforward explanation. I would find that a compelling sighting because you have a lot of people, you know, somebody like very serious went after it. They, you tragically lost their life. This is not a joke. This is not a hallucination. This is not a misunderstanding. Now, by contrast, when you have two people seeing something for five minutes off in the distance, I just, I just don't find it that compelling, even though I can't explain it. Now, I often find that in that situation, I'm not giving other people very good reasons to believe me, right? Like, why? well, why? Sh it's, but, it's, but the burden of proof isn't on you. 
Well, the burden of proof is on Johnson. Yeah, and I come back to my magic trick example, which is I don't care how many magic tricks I see, I'm not going to believe in magic even when I can't explain how the magic trick was done, right? Like, what would it take to actually convince Nathan that magic is a real phenomenon? If I, you know... There'd have to be a number of controlled experiments repeated over and over again. And unless... and, And if you're just basing it on... I saw this thing, I can't explain it, I'm not convinced. Like, yeah, I can also not explain it, but my lack of being able to explain it doesn't then lead me to want to invalidate the laws of physics or allow all kinds of, you know, um, contingencies into the explanation. I guess it's a, it's a disposition. It's somewhat of a conservative epistemological disposition where I'm like, I don't believe it unless you give me compelling reasons to even if I can't explain it. So that's, that's, that's my answer to your accusatory finger. So I'll put my I'll finger give, back. Give it you work, the I'll, accusatory finger. I will put finger. my finger back down. <laughs> I, I don't will, know. What do you make of it? I agree that I would prefer there to be more, of a, a, more quantity here. But you got to admit, the quality is high. Here we have somebody who has access to the top secret aircraft okay. stuff and somebody who probably knows aircraft better than anyone else around who has made a like a fairly careful observation of something. No, I don't think, therefore, it must be aliens. But I do think it... You know what this does do for me? Hmm. Is it reinforces once again that when you try to look at the UFO phenomenon, the closer you look at it, the weirder it gets. Yeah, I know. It is, it is, it is one of those disconcerting experiences where you think it's all rubbish, and you have the unpleasant discovery that that's not the case. And then what do you do with that stuff that isn't rubbish? Because it's so satisfying to say, well, you know, uh, these UFOs that people are seeing, they were these planes, the right. U-2, the A-12, the SR-71, you know, all the stuff that Kelly Johnson designed. Right, right. And then Kelly Johnson sees the UFO and it's like, oh, okay. man. Okay, Here's a, here are a couple of thoughts. One is that while he has a lot of top secret security clearance and access, it's still not going to be universal. So this is something that I've discovered in doing this research. I guess I naively assumed before we did any of this work that if you were, say, the president of the United States and you wanted to know something, you would know it. And that's not how it works. And so even in places like Area 51, which I know Kelly Johnson is sort of running and on top of and stuff, but even there let's just bracket him for a moment, everybody else working at Area 51 is on what they call a need-to-know basis. If it directly impacts your ability to do your job, you get to know about it, and otherwise you don't. And that could mean that people were designing things that they didn't know what it was going to be a part of. You know, you might be designing this cooling system, and it could be part of a drone or an airplane or a car or this or that. And the point is nobody tells you. You're going to work on this, and that's that. I mean, apparently, it's even to the point where um, when you go to the base, you are driven there in blacked out school buses. So you don't even know who the people are on the other buses. Now, if that's true of Area 51, we know this is also true of the American government more generally. So the Air Force doesn't know what the CIA is doing. The CIA doesn't necessarily know what the... Navy is doing, and so there are these moments of hilarious uh, duplication where the Air Force and the CIA are kind of building the same plane with almost the same specs, 
because they don't know that they the don't other know about each other. Yeah. So even somebody like Kelly Johnson, I think it's possible for him to be in the dark. But you know who probably would know about it? Who? 2022 Nathan Radke. Yes, and? I don't know about it. Uh, See, that's the thing. You mentioned Mantell. Great example. But us in the future know what that know was. We know about it. This is only six years after that. Well, so what does it make you... Like, what do you think it is? Mm. But but given the fact that you don't know what it is, mm. what do you think it is? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like... I mean, when I'm faced with that, I and we are kind of then pushed back on our own prejudices, I revert to a skepticism. I've I'm, got an answer. Okay, what? I think it's a UFO. Yeah, but what's the UFO like? I don't know. That's what the U stands for. Okay, I mean, we agree. We agree. But you seem to think it's more leading, you know? It's like suggestive of I something. I think it's interesting. I'll okay. go that far. I'll go that far. Okay. It's interesting. Well, all right. So we've gone that far some, together. Some guy saw something. We both can't explain it, even right. in 2022. You and I have gone as far as interesting. <laughs> well, okay. As long as our listeners agree. 